Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 262 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start today's show with a quote from James Baldwin. You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So... If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey there, how are you? I'm feeling great. Um, I've got to say, I've got a bit addicted to a TV programme though, and I don't know why I haven't seen it before. It's called Race Across the World. And if you haven't come across it yet, the premise is that five pairs of people you know, mix, some are parents and children, some are um, married, some are best friends, some are business partners. Um, Basically, these five pairs of people have to go from one part of the world to the other without using planes, phones and credit or debit cards. All they've got is a map, some job opportunities uh, in the different locations they have to get to and money equivalent to what the airfare would have been. So not very much at all to sort of eat, sleep um, and get around. Now, I understand there's different versions of it uh, across the world. So look out for it where you are. I've loved watching it because it's so great to see different parts of the world. And I don't know if it feels like sweeter because we've had that COVID uh, period where we couldn't go anywhere. Um, And it's also fascinating to see how these people cope stripped of all the modern day communication tools that we have at our disposal and in business too you know it made me think about it we've got so many choices available to us today in the way that we communicate with our audience but when you strip all that back to the fundamentals regardless of the number of platforms at your fingertips your choices really comes down to two options. Do you communicate one-to-many using speaking or writing? And two of the best options available are creating a talk or writing a business book. Now, over recent times, with the advent of the internet and self-publishing, both of these have become more accessible. And that's great. And there is also... I find a symbiosis between a book and a talk with one being a vehicle to promote the other and vice versa. And the reality is that I think to have the biggest impact and reach, um, they probably you should have both. And that's why I've invited Alison Jones, founder of Practical Inspiration Publishing, um, advocate of business books, judge of the Business Book Awards and host of the Extraordinary Business Book Club podcast onto the show. 
And Alison is a veteran of the publishing industry. She's worked at all the big names, Chambers, Oxford University Press, Macmillan, um, both as a publisher and as a director of innovation strategy. And she regularly speaks and blogs on the publishing industry and is also an author in her own right. And today she's going to be taking us behind the scenes of the publishing industry. And it's going to be illuminating, I promise you. It was for me, for sure. And answering lots of questions also that you may have about business book writing and speaking, including what should come first, a book or a talk. So without further ado, let's switch to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Alison Jones. Hello, Sarah. Very nice to be here. It's lovely to have you here. Um, yes, I've been working with a lot of people that think very highly of you. So, and when I had a look, I knew I had to get you on the show to talk about your specialist subject, but also another book that you've written. So let's crack on. Um, first of all, why are you such a champion of business books? Great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I, I've been a publisher all my life, so I've been around books, non-fiction primarily, a lot of reference books in the office work on the Oxford Companions and all those sort of wonderful non-lexical reference stuff. I kind of drifted into professional publishing uh, later in my traditional publishing career and just got fascinated by the, I think, the Cinderella genre of publishing because business books are so broad as a genre they they go everything from really from fiction you know the greatest salesman and five dysfunctions of a team you know you've got sto- real proper storytelling down to the the nittiest grittiest almost sort of professional manual and everything in between and they are all about that unique magic of publishing of books which is taking ideas from somebody's head and making them available to somebody in a completely different space and time I find that astonishing and I think that in terms of the value that they give to people these are things that can transform your business make your career give you the skills that you need for the price of a couple of cups of coffee it's just astonishing yeah absolutely and I mean the thing it's it's become big business now Mm. to do business books and you know and I think there's certainly a continuum that I've seen in terms of good and bad but do you think the proliferation of them especially those ones where you're literally being told to use them as a business card has cheapened the value of becoming a a business book author? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? And it, there's no doubt the publishing revolution, by which I mean the ability to you know press publish and get a word manuscript upon Amazon for sale as a book, uh, means that you, you have to caveat emptor more than ever. You know, you've got to sort of be aware as a buyer of, of, of what it is that you're buying. I think if you do it seriously, it hasn't cheapened I mean, the experience of writing a book and producing a book, yes, the mechanics are easier than they've ever been, but actually that process of doing it well is as hard as it ever was. And I think that is almost one of the most valuable things about becoming an author. It's that process that you have to go through to bring rigor to your thinking, to organize your ideas, to express them perhaps in a way that you never have had to before because you're not in the room with someone. And all of that is as valuable as it ever was. I, I do worry a little bit about the, you know, write your book in a weekend sort of courses and, yeah. you know, just just stick it up on Amazon and, and press publish and there you are. But I think in a sense, they're their own punishment, because if you are using that kind of book and you're writing that quickly and that thoughtlessly and, and publishing without proper editorial um, rigor and guidelines and professional help with design and, and typesetting and so on, 
yes, it's a business card for your business, but you might as well have sort of written it in biro and, you know, done it at home on a bit of paper and cut it up and handed it out. It's a business card, but it's not going to reflect well on you. Mm. So just because it's possible to publish something very, very quickly and with minimal professional support doesn't mean it's necessarily going to act as a particularly attractive (laughs) and helpful way of promoting your business. No, and I agree with you. And I think, so I'm working with one of the authors that uh, you've been working with, but on their talk, different different avenue. Um, and they were telling me that it's seven months. Um, From delivery of manuscripts. Yeah, publication. yeah. That's right. And the reason for that with Practical Inspiration Publishing is the book supply chain. So it's not the production process. It's the fact that our reps around the world are going into bookshops and libraries six months in advance and what we call subbing in. So they're selling in the books and the booksellers are placing their orders. And of course, there's things like the bookseller buyer guides and the catalogues that we do for Frankfurt and for London. So it's really the sales and marketing of the traditional book supply chain, which of course is still huge. I know, I know yeah. Amazon's big, but it's not the whole picture. Yeah. Um, and that is why you need that um, that time lag, if you like, between the delivery of the final manuscript. So the authors actually get their books around four months after delivery of the final manuscript. So that's after copy editing, typesetting, proofreading, print files, after the printer, drop ship from the printer, you know, that that process takes around four months. But actually for the book supply chain, the official publication date, it's, well, it's, it's around six months, but seven gives us a bit of contingency <laughs> but that's that's for like a proper job in the shops not right. just locked up on on amazon um not just in the shops you see the, the the book supply chain is so much bigger than that yes there's bookshops but there's also libraries so there's public libraries but there's also institutional libraries and for business books particularly there's a very big academic market so we've got reps actually going into to talk to lecturers to get books onto reading lists to get the institutional buyer libraries buying them uh, inspection copies to, you know, so that lecturers can see if this is appropriate for their module or for their course and exec program or whatever. So all of that takes time. Wow. Yeah, I didn't really have that understanding of all of that stuff. And I and I think that's and I think just hearing you say that now, sort of the pennies drop for me in terms of why people who go, you know, go through that process um, have I'm going to use the word cachet. I don't know if that's, a, but have more opportunities yes. on the back end because, you know, it's in those types of institutions and organizations. So that makes absolute sense now that it's a much, it's a different animal. It is a different what animal. Most people are used to. And, oh, and I think most people don't realize as well when they're looking at print on demand, which is sort of self-publishing, how self-publishing works and how a lot of publishing partners work too. Yes. The book can be available in bookshops, but a bookshop isn't going to stock it on spec because they can't return it. If it's printed on demand, then you can't return it. It has to be warehoused so that a bookshop can buy it, sale or return. And if it doesn't sell, then they return it. So that's the other big difference and why Practical Inspiration, along with traditional publishers, has warehouses, has rep teams. It's so that bookshops can buy it in and give it a go and see if it sells. Gosh, so they don't they can just give it back, basically. Exactly. If All ah. books are usually, well, th- through the trade, books are generally sold, sale or return. Gosh, and how long do they normally give a book before yeah. they go, right, that's it, this one's not, it's not moving, people don't like it. 
Um, it varies wildly. It's normally sort of two or three months at least that, that, that they'd give it. It's one of the reasons that publishers have a returns provision when they're doing their royalties for authors, because if you are just basing it on the sales and then all, you get all the returns coming in, you've sort of yeah. overpaid the author. Um, but it can also happen if a bookshop is rearranging its stock or, you know, it's been taken over by another bookshop as happened with Blackwells and Waterstones recently. Oh. Um, yeah. And of course, when they come back, they've generally been through the mill and thumbed and, you know, dog-eared and <laughs> they have to be pulled. It's a terrible business model, honestly. <laughs> it does sound, so what, so basically they're just, um, they have just to be thumped. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, it's awful. I know. There are, there are book trade charities and so on, but um, yeah. Gosh. Yeah, so it's one of the reasons I say to people, you know, books are such low priced objects, way lower priced than they should be. But that's where we are culturally. And it's also, you know, Amazon has has played into that. And the retailer takes 50% straight off, um, sometimes more if it's a promotion. And so you're left with a very small amount of money out of which you pay for the actual physical book. And of course, the cost of that has gone up massively, even though the price of the book has stayed the same and the warehousing and the rep commission. And, you know, you're, you're making not very much money at all out of the sale of each book. And that money has to pay for the ones that don't sell as well um, for, for the publisher. So you've got to be sure about the return on investment and where that is in your business. Because if that book isn't bringing in really good business and making you revenue elsewhere, or you're not really clear on why you're doing it and how it's going to move you forward professionally and personally, you know, you're going to be probably quite disappointed in the actual revenue from book sales. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And I'm going to come back to something that you've just mentioned then. But uh, I was talking to um, an author on the show, um, a fiction author, a lady called Amanda Scott, um, best-selling author. And she was saying to me that the whole model of like releasing a book and going to do tours around bookshops and all that has, has died off now. Is that your, is it the same for business books? It's unfortunately, and honestly, I'm really would love to change this. Most bookshops aren't that interested in business books. I think it's a real shame. You know, there are exceptions and particularly in London, there are bookshops with great business book and particularly also in campus. Um, So, you know, in in bookshops associated with universities, they tend to have good business sections. But generally, most booksellers, if you ask them what they really care about, it's literary fiction. And that's what they and that's, I guess, what readers tend to get excited about as well. But I think that's a huge opportunity because if you think about the explosion in small micro businesses there are so many entrepreneurs up and down the country now and most of them don't have access to formal business education but any one of them could rock up to a business book event at a bookshop and you know anyway there we are that's a completely separate thing (laughs) but no I think that you know bookshops have post-pandemic really restarted their events programs that they are I mean I've talked to the booksellers association about this they're really really keen that their sort of point of difference to Amazon is their placemaking their Mm. ability to be part of the community to host events to be experiential so wherever they can they are doubling down on that I just don't think they're doing it with business books and I'd love to change that (laughs) Interesting. So there's definitely an opportunity there, I think, for for business authors potentially to take the mantle and go to their local business shop and create a a, a networking slash business book club or something like that. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah, But I would say if you are a self-published author, just be quite careful because book book shops are um, have been done quite badly by kind of 
self-published authors coming in with a backpack of books which don't go through the book supply chain yeah they can't return them and they can't put them through their point of sale because they haven't got you know the, the correctly mm. formatted barcode and stuff so if you're working with a publisher then they're going to be taking care of that for you but yeah. if not just be a little bit careful interesting there's lots of uh, lots of pitfalls mm. now we talked about business books I think I, I'm absolutely with you on this I think especially for just-in-time learning, which is something that I think, you know, is brilliant. A book, you come across a problem, you can get a book to solve that specific problem. You don't have to invest in a big course or whatever. You can, you can, you know, certainly have a good go at solving that problem. And the best business books that I've read are sort of bringing in storytelling, which is, which is what I, you know, absolutely promote. But how important do you think it is to tell a story for a business book author? I think it's hugely important. And <laughs> there are books where it's less important. Yeah. So for a really detailed technical manual, yeah, probably no. you don't want to be doing too much <laughs> in a way of storytelling. You know. But, you know, this is how we learn. It's how we engage. It's how you keep somebody's attention is you open a story loop. You give mm. people a narrative. You connect with them emotionally. Mm. And if you're not doing that, your business book is likely to be less read less remembered less helpful than mm. it might otherwise have been mm. so I think that learning the craft of storytelling understanding what's going on in a reader's brain how you can hook them in and keep them engaged because they want to find out how this ends and and how they can you know how you can use empathy to to invite a reader almost to step into this situation what would you do you know how yeah. would you feel I, I think if if you can do that and it is a craft it is a skill it's not something we are well, actually, we're all fairly good storytellers naturally, but it's doing it in writing in a business book definitely takes some skill and practice and training <laughs> to yeah. do it well. Yeah. It, it's it's excruciating when it's done badly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Patrick when I was still in the corporate world. I think one of the the sort of and started getting into sort of business books. Patrick Lencioni's work was mm. stuck out at of the times years ago now. Um, as it was fictional but the lessons people could get the lessons so much easier and remember them like you said was he a sort of outlier at the time and people yeah. have followed yeah I mean he wasn't on his own if you think about Michael Gerber the e-myth that's, yeah. that's done fictionalized as well and yeah. the greatest salesman you know Og. It, it, there are a few of them one of the one of the ways that I think works so well partly because he's a very good storyteller it's, it's just a good story and so we're talking about five dysfunctions of a team here where you've got yes, the CEO yeah. who's sort of trying to deal with a really difficult, intractable yeah. board and, and bringing people along, some are keen, some are not. Um, it allows you to, to sidestep one of the very difficult um, decisions that you have to make as a business book author, which is about the voice that you use, the person. So you can talk about we, first person plural, but that can sound a little bit patronising. And, and and also, you know, if you read it, well, you might think, I don't think that, you know, how dare you assume you could talk about you, which is generally quite safe and direct, but it can be almost confrontationally direct sometimes. And you can get it wrong because actually that isn't their experience. So by putting it into the third person, you kind of stand alongside the reader watching the action. And that can be a really helpful way of breaking down defences and just inviting them to notice what resonates with them, almost just read over what doesn't. And yeah, it can be a really, really helpful narrative technique interesting interesting cool now we've probably covered a few of these already but I'm going to ask the question what 
do you think are the biggest mistakes, Alison, that you see authors making when they're writing a business book? Um, I think probably the most common one is just trying to shove everything in there. I, oh, and let me tell you about this. And oh, and of course, when you're thinking about that, you have to consider, which all may be true, but I think we've all sat in those talks, haven't we, where we're just like, let me die now because I was they gonna are say, it's exactly the same. <laughs> it's exactly the same with talks. Yeah. Yeah. Less is more. Yeah. And having a really clear point that you're making, having everything serve that and bring the reader step by step through understanding what it is they need to understand and, and how they apply that. It takes discipline. It's unbearable sometimes when you can't put the story in and it's such a good story and you love it so much. And, you know, oh, you know, this, this is one of my favorite bits about this topic. If it's not serving the reader and if it isn't in service of that through line, I have to go. It's, maybe it's a blog post. Maybe it's an article. Maybe you don't have to kill it completely. But having the discipline to really get clear on what it is that you want the reader's journey to be and then just take that step by step without sort of hesitation, deviation or repetition yeah. is really, really hard, but really, really important. Absolutely. So putting too much in, what else would yeah. you say? Um, I think trying to write without a clear sense of what it is you're going to write. So, and some people can do this, but they are quite rare beasts. So for most, particularly for first time business book authors, but for most people anyway, having a skeletal structure that you then gradually chip away at and fill in over time I'm mixing my metaphors horribly here but um is going to be much much more helpful than sort of sitting down to write book because you can probably write an article like that so you could write maybe an introduction to a book but a, you you need scaffolding to write a successful book and when you have that scaffolding in place and when you're fairly clear on what the 10 chapters are and roughly how long they're going to be and what the subheadings are you can kind of sit down and write because then you're writing 300 words on this subtopic and that's doable. It's doable mm -hmm. in, you know, an hour, half an hour, whatever you've got to hand. If you're writing your book, a lot of people just end up kind of starting the book over and over again. Yeah. And then they just write themselves into the ground and don't quite know where to go next. Yeah. I mean, the structure might change over time as you write. That's one of the reasons why you write is to develop your thinking and to see new connections and see better ways of expressing it. But if you haven't got... A structure to start with you're probably just going to kind of write yourself into the ground quite quickly yeah absolutely I was at a writer's uh, retreat uh, a few weekends ago and they were talking about some of these issues of whether you were I think it's a, a planner or a pantser or something a that plotter or pantser, plotter or pantser yeah. that's it <laughs> and uh and they was they was talking there was a couple of tips that they shared which was was quite useful which was something that I do is so I'm in the middle of finishing a play at the moment and I tend to go back and read like each time just to refresh and they were saying have some bullet points so that you don't keep needing to go back and they were also saying about and I don't know if you think this might be useful for people is um right to the middle so rather than thinking about right to the end right to the middle and then sort of you know if you've got that structure as well that's really helpful but um does that does that do you think that might help at all I hadn't heard right to the middle, and I'd, I'm interested to know a bit more about that. I mean, one thing I would say about business books, as opposed to fiction, fiction. or plays or, yeah. you know, even narrative nonfiction, is that people use them differently. They dip in and out and they read yeah. more episodically and they go to the bit True. that feels appropriate at this moment, which means that you have to write in a more granular way. Yeah. You know, each section sort of has to be capable of standing alone, whereas you would never read a 
a novel like that, you know, so yeah. it is a bit different. So you need more, more structure, more apparatus, more signposting to help people dip in and dip out. Um, so while the whole thing has an overall structure and a through line and you are taking people through sequentially, and wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody sat down and started at page one and finished at page 250 or whatever it is, really that's not how people use it and even if they have in the past read it that way they will dive in and remind themselves what you said about a certain point so I think you have to think more in terms of building a structure out of discrete blocks maybe bricks you know or something so yeah. that you're actually allowing somebody to access your content as they need to quite yeah. quickly because they're probably quite time poor and this yeah. is a, it's a lean-in book it's not a kind of lean back and, and immerse yourself in this world you, you're using it rather than just reading it so I think that yeah. is a difference in the way that people structure business books I think that's absolutely true and it goes back to that just-in-time learning right yes I'm looking at the table of contents that's what I need yeah um and, and this and is where my kind of background as a reference editor really comes in as well because you know when you were in the old days when we were putting together reference books like an Oxford companion it would have been a to z and you need to provide lots of different ways into that material. Yeah. So you need to think, OK, if you are interested in the characters of Dickens, you know, here's a character index or whatever it was going to be. So you actually have to think, what are the use cases for this book and how can I support people to access that content? So some of our authors, for example, do quick start guides at the front, you know, or kind of troubleshooting help. I need to run a meeting oh. tomorrow and it's got it's hybrid and, and, you know, go to this section. So giving and cross referencing between sections is, you know, all of that information architecture piece um which you'd have to think about in a novel that's yeah. really important in a business book yeah absolutely so the user experience really comes into yes it. oh yeah. it's, it's a ux project absolutely yeah absolutely oh cool now we talked um earlier about the roi on writing a book mm. um specifically a business book we were talking about but i don't know if it applies to all books whether fiction or non-fiction um that you have to be very, very clear on how you're going to get that return and build that um, asset into your marketing structure, whatever. Now, I guess the question that I'm leading to is, do you think that business authors need a talk or a product or service around the book? So I hate to be dogmatic, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not, as a business book author, you're not primarily a writer. If you are writing novels, then you want to build a career as a writer and you produce books and that's your revenue stream. And that's not, if you're a business book writer, typically you're running a business or you're leading a business where you have expertise. And that's really what you're doing. You're positioning yourself as an expert in a field. And if there's no way that people can go having read your book going, oh, this person really gets this topic, you know, they understand the issues I'm facing as an HR manager in a big organization, you know, whatever it is, mm. what are they going to do next? So I think that a business book ideally is the sort of fullest expression of intellectual property, which finds expression in other ways as well. Yeah. A talk, a program, a, a mentoring scheme, um, a coaching program, you know, sort of, it, it could be any number of different things, courses, training. Um, but if you haven't got other expressions of that intellectual property and the book is only standing alone, then it's probably going to not do as well as it could do because the other thing is that these things synergize somebody goes along to a talk they buy your book because they've experienced you and now they want to take a little bit of you away yeah. somebody reads your book they invite you to come in and talk to their organization yeah. about this this topic so there, there's a wonderful um synergistic relationship between the different 
ways that you express that intellectual property and, and the, you know, the experiential piece plus the the deep sort of go away and, and understand it really well piece. Um, so I think you're missing out if you, if you aren't building those things together. If you're going to ask me what order they have to be in, then that's I'm what be my next dogmatic. question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. What is it? Is it chicken and egg? Should it be the talk, yeah. talk or the book? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I have thought a lot about this um, because people have asked me this before. I and again, I I think there are situations in life where the sequence of events really really matters. I don't think this is one of those. No. no I, <laughs> I would say right. I, I I think personally, I'd say hone a talk or a course I mean exploratory writing my own most recent book I developed first as a course because I wanted to test it out with people I wanted yeah. to get how it landed with them when I wasn't in the room with them when I wasn't delivering a workshop on this and that was hugely helpful and it also gave me a cohort of people who really supported me in launching the book so that was really helpful as well but I think if you are doing something like a course or a talk it's more amenable to change uh, you, you can take the feedback and adapt more easily a book has a longer shelf life and is much harder to change once it's published so for that reason I think it's probably a good idea to develop your intellectual property to get the feedback to refine how you express your ideas in a, a different forum before you finalize yeah. the book but you can do Absolutely. them alongside each other and I think the other thing that it gives you is the opportunity to get case studies yes. to find different ways of looking at the problem that may be more relatable to the people that are reading your book. So it will be a much richer, um, probably piece of work if you do it that way around Absolutely. rather than just have the idea and, you know, put it on paper first. Cool. And in fact, you said to me about what you're one of the mistakes people make. I'd say that's another one, actually. People think I must finish my book. I'm going to you know, clear my decks. I'm going to shut myself away. I'm going to go to a beach hut. I'm going to write my book. And which is great in terms of getting words down on paper. What it doesn't do is allow you to crowdsource the ideas, to test them, to see how they land, to, to develop your thinking. So I think writing it in public almost or writing it alongside people and getting early feedback um, is really, really important. That's brilliant. Thank you. Now, you just mentioned it. You talked about your book, The Power of Exploratory Writing. And I wondered if you could share how that came about and what difference it's made to you. Yes, and it's a great case study of talks as well. <laughs> so exploratory writing um, is, and it's interesting, I, it's one of those things that I developed as sort of a, a sort of back of a back packet intellectual property. And I was looking at the different, because writing is such a, you know, we use the word writing, but it's so many different things. And the writing that you do in a book is expository or explanatory. You're, you're really clear about what it is that you're saying and you're ready to go public on it. But before that, there's a kind of writing you do where it's an absolute hot mess. And I call that exploratory writing. And it's much less, you're not ready to go public with it. And you're much less clear about what the heck it is you're actually saying. But the writing helps you to get clearer and it helps you unpack your brain and see what it is. And you know, once it's out there, you can do something with it. So there's this raw, messy, unclear, and there's very, very few places that we can get that stuff outside our brains especially if you're the leader of an organization you know it's not a good look to be that messy and unclear and uncertain in a board meeting mm. <laughs> or indeed anywhere unless you have a really really good coach so for me the the moment at which I it the sort of the penny dropped was a very raw personal experience um and I had kept this to myself for a very long time until I was giving a TEDx talk on exploratory writing and I gave my draft talk to a friend who 
knew quite a lot about TEDx and they said, well, it's, it's all very interesting, but where are you? I went, oh, I'm going to have to tell my story, aren't I? I went, yeah. Yes, you are. So my three in the morning entrepreneurial anxiety attack where I, you know, I was unable to sleep, unable to do anything, thinking, oh, my God, we're going to lose the house. We're going to, you know, what have I done? Apparently, it's not just me. So that's comforting. This apparently, this is this is quite common to entrepreneurs. I didn't really know that at the time because nobody was speaking about it. But I didn't know what to do. And I did what occurred to me, which was I grabbed a pencil and a sheet of paper and I started writing and, and basically howled onto paper. And what amazed me and gave me that moment of there's something here was that I didn't just change my state. I didn't just calm down and deal with the anxiety. I actually, at the end of just a few minutes, came up with some ideas. And that was astonishing to me that I could have turned from this, you know, emotional limbic sort of panicky state to a really productive, rational, useful, creative state just in the process of writing. I thought that is magic. And so I started to use this. I didn't have a word for it at the time. I called it free writing. But free writing is is typically much calmer you don't do it in response to a, a, a sort of prompt like that and it's more associated with creativity whereas this was much more problem solving it was much more responding to um, a stressor or an irritant or something like that so that's now what I call exploratory writing and as I started to use this in my coaching and talking to people I'd see consistently people go wow that's amazing and when you get that kind of response you're like okay there's something here and that's when I started writing the book and I was a bit worried that it would be blindingly self-evident but it seems not to be <laughs> <laughs> and and so this is I think I just wanted to make that clear distinction because it sounds to me like you know this is I've got a problem something that keeps an obstacle or some stressor like you said and I want to put that down on paper and then just see what comes up after putting that first thing down is that right yes and it, it, it is where exactly where I started and I discovered that it can be much more than that so I think that the, the key elements of exploratory writing are the prompt mm. and very often the prompt can be the irritant the the scratchy feeling that something's not quite right that the frustration you know whatever it is, which of course is often the start of the business book as well <laughs> and so you frame that as a question and by framing it as a question and then giving yourself I say six minutes you know, I mean, there's no police around this, obviously, but six minutes is a really good time because it gives you time to get into it. But it's still short enough that there's a sense of urgency and you can keep writing without stopping, which is the important thing. Um, but having that prompt unlocks your um, instinctive elaboration mental reflex, which is that if you give your brain a question, it kind of can't help but answer it. Mm -hmm. So you're really making that, um, that habit of the human brain and making it work for you, making it a superpower. And then you just start writing. And the great thing is that normally when you're writing, you're performing, you're writing for somebody else to read. You're trying to look good. You're using the yeah. right words. You're putting, you're using your apostrophes <laughs> with exploratory writing. Nobody else is ever going to see this and you aren't going to keep it. So this is not the sort of writing you do in your beautiful journal. This is the writing you do on a scruffy A4 pad and you can say goodbye to your apostrophes if you want and you can start drawing rather than writing if that helps and it's absolutely just for you and then at the end of the six minutes and it usually takes about two minutes before you see someone going and you see them almost relax into it and there, there's the gold so at the end of the six minutes you just kind of look back you pick out the things that are valuable the to-do list the the insight the question that you're going to take forward the the solution whatever and you throw it away because it's done its job and there's yeah. it's incredibly liberating 
Nice. I feel like it might be another way to access your intuition because that logical brain is not getting in the way of, you know, getting to that higher self or whatever you call it. And Um, that's the thing about the speed. It breaks through that sensor, that rational gatekeeper that you normally have up because you don't want to look like a fool. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Sounds brilliant. And um, so we talked about that, talked about um, writing a business book. Let's talk about speaking now. You mentioned the TEDx. I'm assuming that wasn't your first foray into speaking. Um, Can you tell me about that experience and then also how speaking plays a part in getting your own message out there? Yeah, great question. Yes and no. It was the first time I'd done speaking as a performance, which is so different. So I have spoken at I don't know how many publishing industry events over the years. I've been... um, hosting panels and speaking on panels and giving talks about digital publishing and and, uh, innovation strategy which was my kind of background in traditional publishing but generally you have your powerpoint and you're talking about your area of expertise there's very little emotional content there you don't feel very vulnerable and you're really speaking to an audience where you're not the center of attention really the ideas are and, and you're helping them that feels like a lot less pressure. (laughs) Giving the TEDx, doing the TEDx was so different because it was a performance. There was no audience interaction. It was just me speaking a scripted thing. And I couldn't go off piste because it had to be a certain length of time. It was so carefully crafted. I was working with a speaking coach, Catherine Sandland here at TEDx Northwich. It was wonderful. And the stage presence, actually thinking about how I was moving my body or not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and where I was standing and how I was looking at the audience, all those performative aspects, they were completely new to me. I'd, I'd done it just by instinct before. Yeah. So that was fascinating and very revealing about how I, I self-soothe by rocking from side to side, which apparently is a bad thing. <laughs> and in terms of how it plays out now, the TEDx obviously is is a great having it there, having people looking at that, coming to the book, coming to speak to me off the back of it has been fantastic. Um, People feel like they know you when mm. they've seen you talk like that. And, and it, you know, talking about my three in the morning moment. And so they, they, there's a sort of trust and empathy that, that comes through that. I'd say now I really focus more on the kind of speaking, perhaps that I'm more instinctively used to, which is mm. workshops, which is talks, which is helping people understand for themselves and participative. Mm. Um but I, which isn't to say that I wouldn't like to do the performative stuff again, but <laughs> it's yeah. just the way it's gone at the moment, um, which is just a joy, you know, being yeah. in the same room as people sharing the, the energy, the space, it's such a buzz. I'm an extrovert, Absolutely. as you can probably tell. <laughs> it, it is. It's love. I always think of it as a dance with your audience and yes, uh, you're co-creating. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, I, you know, there is, there is the, the, the dancer when you're writing a book as well. It's just mm. that they, you know, that you can't see them. So you've got to keep them in mind all the same, as I'm sure you would say. Okay, cool. Now I've got some standard questions. Before I do that, I just wanted to um, just touch on how things work with your particular company, because it's a little bit different, isn't it, to how people might um, come across, you know, business book writing. So I wondered if you could share about that and how it works. About practical inspiration publishing? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so, well, as I've said, I've came out of traditional publishing, so I've been in publishing literally all my career, literally out of university into publishing, so I, I kind of couldn't leave that behind. And 
as you probably know now, there's a lot more to publishing than simply writing the book and yeah. pressing publish on. So all of that stuff that I care about passionately, good design, good editorial standards, good production standards, book supply chain, metadata, sales and marketing, rights, sales, you know, all of that. I just wasn't prepared to leave that behind when I set up my own publishing company. So that's what practical inspiration is in a sense. It's uh, as far as our sales reps around the world are concerned, you know, they're selling Kogan Page, Emerald, Harvard Business Review Press, and us, you know, we, we are in that um, world, which is great. Um, and we're working with business book people who, business book writers who aren't professional writers typically, and need a lot more support if they're going to write a really, really good book. Traditional publishing, because it's so low margin, finds it very, very hard to accommodate that. Mm. It just wants to get books out as quickly as possible with as little friction and overhead as possible. And who can blame them? Because, as I say, it's a low margin business. So we are a partner publisher in the sense that the author takes the financial responsibility for funding the book. We are also a traditional publisher in that we have a filter. We have a concept review stage where we so we don't just take anybody on. And the... I think it's a much fairer model because the author is then buying their book at cost. Mm. Uh, we have a 15% kind of charge on that to cover our own overhead. But what it means is if you're buying your book instead of you know, perhaps a 20% or even up to 50% author discount, you're buying it at you know, £2, £2.50 a book plus 15%, which is a huge difference. And if you're using it in a business very, very quickly, you know, you're going to be spending less on this model than if you're doing traditionally. And they have much more control over their intellectual property mm. and over decisions like uh, how the cover's going to look the colours that we use, you know, making it fit alongside your brand, being able to use the intellectual property in other ways in your business that like we just talked about, you know, in, in courses or talks or programmes. Um, and they get obviously the majority of the revenue from sales as well because they took the financial risk. So it's the economics behind the model are different, I think much more satisfying and it allows, uh, I think it's a much richer experience for the author because they're getting much more support along the way um, and they've got much more control. Um, but the end result, because of, as far as the book trade is concerned, basically it's traditional publishing and it's a great way of bringing those two things together. Brilliant. And how do, let's say someone's listening and they, they think, well, I, I think I've got an idea for a great business book. Um, what's the best way for them to enter your world, um, yeah. if you like? So I'd say two things. Firstly, they could uh, drop me a line, alison.alisonjones.com, and they can request a concept review, uh, which is basically anything from the back of a fag packet to a draft manuscript, you know, or anything in between. And it's just, I, it's £250, which we deduct from the publishing fee if you if we both decide we're right for each other. But what you get is that sort of sense of, okay, is this robust? Is this Has this got legs? Where does it sit in the market? Who's the target audience? Is it credible? All that kind of stuff. Um, or they could have a go at the 10-day business book proposal challenge, which I run three times a year, January, April, and September. And that's a really, really good way. It's, it's, it's a small group, up to 35 people. Uh, it's something about the group dynamic is really, really energizing. And it's literally 10 working days to get from twinkle in the eye to a book proposal, which is pretty much ready to submit to publishers. Um, all the things that publishers need to know who's this book for what problem is it solving what's your plans for selling and marketing it as um, what's the table of contents you know what's the structure of it um what's the marketing message how is it different from other books you know this is hard and so I give personal feedback to each person as they sort of submit the the things it's it's works because um we've had people 
get publishing contracts with Hachette, Penguin, Icon Books, um, Pearson, Routledge, Kogan Page, you know, Bloomsbury. Oh. All of those have come out of the proposal challenge. Lots of people go on to self-publish. And of course, lots of people go on to publish the practical inspiration. And one person in each challenge will win an all expenses publishing deal with practical inspiration. So that's our traditional publishing model, if you like. Brilliant. And I'll put a link uh, to all of the website and how they can get in touch with you and also link to the challenge in the show notes. Great. Brilliant. Okay. So let's just quickly finish up with some standard questions. And this is the speaking club. Um, The first question is um, what has speaking done for you? It's forced me to come out of the curse of knowledge and think about what I'm saying and how I'm saying it from the other person's point of view. Why should they care? And you you have to do that in a book, but it's less acute because you can't see people's reaction. So that I think is such a gift. And watching people respond to what you say feels like a real gift as well. It feels magical. It is. It can be pretty addictive speaking. Yeah. You you can't stop. That's smashing. And have you ever had an experience when speaking uh, wherever, whenever, where you've got you're like, oh, I really wish that hadn't happened, hadn't happened and I just want to forget about it now? Um, I think I've been quite lucky. I can't I don't think I have. I've never sort of fallen off the stage or... <laughs> blanked or anything like that um I've had tech hiccups but then I kind of go expecting tech hiccups and I always find actually they're a great way of connecting with your audience because you're you're all together going technology and and then often so I I remember turning up have oh there we go there's a good one I turned up having left behind the memory stick with the talk on it so I had to give the whole talk uh, completely without notes or, or presentation and it was great because, of course, I knew it. And instead of look at the presentation, yeah. <laughs> everybody was looking at me and I was looking at them and it felt much more authentic and real. So that was a good lesson that actually you don't need the props. You think you do, but you don't. No. And do you remember the first time you spoke? You say you're an extrovert, but were you nervous the first time you ever oh, spoke? Always. I mean, I'm always nervous when I speak. And I think you... I don't know I can't imagine not being I think it's one of the things that helps you do a good job and and it means you care about what you're doing so yeah no always nervous yeah excellent now I think this might be a difficult question for you um (laughs) what's the book that's had most impact on your life and why my go-to here is is probably um the one I'm going to say which is Gay Hendrix's The Big Leap it's one that I read fairly near the start of my entrepreneurial journey. And his he's such a warm writer. He I've spoken to him on the podcast on my podcast as well, the Extraordinary Business Book Club. And he genuinely is like that. He's the most wonderful person. And you get that sense of him as you as you're reading it. So it was a great, it was a masterclass in how to write a business book for one thing. But he has concepts like the zone of genius and not trying to spend your time getting better at the stuff that you're actually pretty appalling at and other people can do better. Yeah. Like, what is your zone of genius and how can you maximize the time you spend in there, which I thought was just so sane. And he talks about upper limiting beliefs, which I hadn't had a word for before. I, I'd noticed myself doing it, deflecting yeah. compliments, um, almost self-sabotaging as soon as I realized I was happy because it was dangerous to be happy. And I think this is one of the great gifts of business book writing is that you can give people the words 
for the experiences, the thoughts, patterns, the, the, the phenomena that they had noticed, but they haven't had the language to describe before. And once you can name something and you have a model for it or a, or a, a way of thinking about it, then you're equipped to deal with it much more effectively. Absolutely. I think that's that's so true. Right. I don't I haven't actually read that book yet, so I must. Oh, great. I must do that. I read so many business books and I always feel guilty now about reading a fiction book. Yeah. No, because actually you need to. Well, firstly, you, it, there's a richness and an immersive quality with fiction, which is good for your brain and it's good for empathy. And this, I'm not just making this up. This is actually <laughs> neuroscience research shows it. And also, if you're going to be writing, then you need to, as I say, build that craft. And one of the best ways to do it is to read good books from all genres. Absolutely. That's what I do on holiday my fiction book so yeah, mm. cool okay next question um what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why oh that's a great question um when I I had two years before I actually started up my business Macmillan were moving from Basingstoke to London and I was a director at the time and so I was um I had a lot of time to think about what I was going to do and I decided fairly quickly that I was going to not go to London which meant setting up on my own really because there's not much publishing outside London really um and I set about asking everybody I knew who ran their own business what do you wish you'd known before you started nice and it was fantastic. I started a little private blog, a little WordPress private blog with what I learned today. And I kept it on there. So, I mean, that's that's my advice, I guess, you know, is just have a little place where you can capture the wisdom from people. If you are thinking about setting up your own business, ask people. But one of the things that people told me, and I think I heard it from about four different people, was get an accountant as soon as you absolutely possibly can. And it still remains one of the most best bits of business advice ever. <laughs> Not because I'd have been shocking as my own accountant and they they made me set up systems and processes and categorize income and revenue and get my tax sorted right from the beginning I think it would have been a nightmare to try to do that you know once you had a successful business exactly yeah. yeah absolutely cool that's brilliant and they keep you compliant which is really important <laughs> cool um so last question then if you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Michelle Obama. Cool. I mean, just a phenomenal woman, amazing writer, is able to be absolutely herself while being so high status and um, and classy. Yeah. I just, yeah, I'd love a bit of that. <laughs> there you go. Well, to who knows? She might listen. You never know. I don't think she needs any help with her speaking, but she never know. So that's brilliant. Well, thank I you. I love you, so Michelle. <laughs> brilliant. I I would just thank you so much for sharing uh, all of that. I've had some aha moments there myself today, which has been really interesting to sort of see behind the scenes and and things that you you're not aware of that go on in terms of actually creating a book that will represent your brand and position you in the best way possible. So that's been really useful. So thank you for that. Um, is there anything else that you feel you need to share in order to call this interview complete and perhaps mention the podcast again? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think, you know, if you can, I guess if, if you remember nothing else, remember that writing is a really, really powerful thinking tool. It's so underrated and undervalued today you do not have to be writing a book to really benefit from the clarity and the creativity and the um 
the psychological benefits that that writing gives you. So there you are. That's my big takeaway. And if you are interested in business books, then you might like to listen to the Extraordinary Business Book Club podcast, which comes out every Monday morning. I talk to business book writers, also to publishers and speakers and people who just have something to say about the, the content economy. And it's a lot of fun. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. It's been just a joy. Thank you. I really had my eyes opened about how publishing really works and, you know, the whole sort of the the reps going round, putting them into, you know, curriculums and, and all of that sort of thing. And I hadn't really been aware of that. And also, you know, how that impacts the profit margins and and therefore, you know, a book really isn't uh, the end. It's it's a means to getting more business, which is how you get the ROI. And all of that was a big uh, surprise to me. I sort of knew, but, you know, it uh, really hit home when Alison took us all through that. And I guess it also gave me a lot of insight into why some business books are taken more seriously than others. Uh, Speaking as a self-published author, um, you know, it's interesting. I probably would have done things differently with a couple of the books uh, that I've done. Lots of food for thought. Well, if you have an idea for a book, then do check out Alison's website and the link for the book proposal challenge uh, is in the show notes for you. If you want to have a go at exploratory writing to get unstuck, get in touch with your intuition, then go and grab her book. And if anything she said, you know, hit a chord with you, then do also go and say hi to her on LinkedIn. I'm sure she would appreciate that. And and if you have decided, having listened to our conversation, that you want to do your signature talk before your book, then do head over to saraharcher.co.uk and book in a speaking game plan call with me. It's complimentary. We'll have a look at where you are, where you want to get to, what's stopping you. We'll put a game plan together to help you reach that destination. So thank you once again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. And do you know what? If if you would do me a massive favour, I'd appreciate it. If you like the show, if you get value from it, if you're a regular listener, do take a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or wherever you're listening, whether that's on Spotify, Amazon, one of the uh, podcast apps, you can also leave a rating or review there for the show. And, you know, come and say hi to me too. I'm on LinkedIn, Sarah Arch 15 also at Twitter and Instagram. If you want to have a chat about anything related to speaking, if you have any ideas for a guest, just send me a message and let's have a little chat on there as well. And I will catch you next time. But until then, you know what I'm going to say. Don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye. One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six step heart map blueprint for creating powerful authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action. Here's some feedback from previous attendees. 
definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience. Well worth signing up for Sarah's Masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience. Recommend it massively. Best two hours I've spent all year. I know your time is precious. That's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement and sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.